to love you with all of our heart and to live with you in eternal happiness for your praise and glory. Father, we have sinned against you. We do not meet that criteria, but there was one that did, and he does, Jesus, your son. We thank you today for sending him in our place to die in our place, to live in our place, to give us his goodness, to take away our punishment so that we might, in a future state, truly know you as our creator and to truly love you with all of our heart and to live with you in eternal happiness. We come here today to worship you because of that and to thank you for that and to praise you for that. I pray that now as your word is preached that, Holy Spirit, you will open our ears to hear your words, open our hearts to feel what it is that you are doing in us today, to open our minds to be able to think and reason through these words that you have written to your people. And Father, I pray that you would help us to more and more become like your son so that we will be your people. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Church, remain standing as we prepare to read God's word for us this morning. As our team comes off the platform here, you might want to open up the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You'll see it on the screen as well. We're going to read the first 25 verses together. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to God for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who uh, prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you, come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none are without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret Or if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if I, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is either, is, is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words of my, with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not, be children, uh, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, by, by all he is called to accounts by all, and secrets of his, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God that God is really among you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, we have quite the passage before us here this morning as we jump back into our study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, I've been very eager to get back here um, with you. It's something that I've missed 
Uh, I hope that you've missed as well the steady diet of expositional teaching, preaching, instruction um, that has been and is the norm for our fellowship here at Grace Church. We do like to spend times and seasons where we isolate certain themes and ideas that maybe we need a little bit more theological and biblical and practical clarity on like we've done through our Advent series as we do each year and now uh, last month our series on money and wealth. And so I hope that those two series have been helpful and edifying to you and challenging you and spurring you on to deeper joy-filled hope and obedience and faithfulness. That's the goal of anything we do here. But uh, I love just getting back into a text and working through it with you, even if it is one of the most uh, controversial and difficult texts. What a, what a text to jump back into uh, 1 Corinthians in. I'm not sure I planned this out that well, you know? Um, but it's okay. I, I feel very confident that the word that we're going to receive here this morning is going to be very, very encouraging to us, and it'll be very much needed for us and even clarifying for us. And so this is the first time we've preached in 1 Corinthians since uh, November, um, and so it'll be probably behoove us to do a quick review of it. Uh, and what I'm going to do here for the next couple of minutes is going to be a quick flyby, a very high level, and I'll especially deal with a little bit of 12 and 13, chapter 12 and 13, which is kind of the context of chapter 14. And so you'll remember back in, I think it was the last Sunday of October, all the way up through the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we were, we spent three weeks in chapter 12, and then Tom Garrett, one of our um, elder candidates here, did uh, chapter 13 for us right before Thanksgiving, before we started the um, Advent series. And, um, and so I'm, I, what I don't cover in the next couple of minutes is hopefully you can, I commend to you going and listening to those. They're online if you need them in some way. Um, but you recall in this letter we've been studying since last January, or yeah, end of last January, um, this was a letter to a people that Paul dearly loves. And that's why we called this series Dear Church, because the church at Corinth is a church that is dear to Paul. Indeed, it is dear to God, in spite of the fact that this church was messy on so, so many levels. This should be, of course, an encouragement to us who hear and read through the text of 1 Corinthians and other parts of the Bible. Because though you and I come in here and we're individually messy people, broken people, sinful people at times, um, and though we corporately certainly have plenty of room to grow in various ways in our life, we are still very, very dear to God. And brother and sister, if you're here this morning and you question that, let me say to you, if you are holding on to your confession of Christ, no matter what you brought in here this morning, you too are very, and you are still dear to the heart of God yourself. And I just want you to hear that. I want you to settle into that because it's so vital for you. You cannot receive God's word with a whole heart, with gratitude this morning, with a sense of hopefulness, if you cannot hold on to that as the core of everything we preach as a church. And there is a lot of talk in our day about the imperfections of the church. You don't really turn many pages or turn on many stations that talk about the church and uh, often hear the world use that reality to try to discredit the church. And sometimes the church does some really goofy things, sometimes horrendous things. And so the, the world does have some, at times, a legitimate critique of the church. And we see this in throughout church history, sometimes more recent history, sometimes much further back history. And it causes people who are not part of the church to question if the church is really uh, a place that they can trust. And, and there's certainly sometimes that can be a reality. But here's what makes the church distinct. And I think this is what the wonderful thing that kind of underneath all of 1 Corinthians is. That our testimony, and brothers and sisters, please, glory in this. Our testimony isn't how good we are. It isn't about how we're doing. It's about what God does, what God has done, and what God is going to do, and primarily what he's done in his son, Jesus. That the church is not presently a perfected people, but is a people being perfected. We are not presently a perfected people, but we are a people being perfected by the perfect word, Jesus. And I can't imagine a better way to launch into 1 Corinthians 14 than that. 
That's the whole reason we read and study and examine the Word of God, because ultimately in it we see the Word of God, Jesus, and see Him, and He, and I put our hope and rest in Him. So then highlighting this reality um, uh, of, of being a messy church, an imperfect church, doesn't cause us to be ambivalent towards our sin and our remaining struggle with it, our remaining fight with it. In fact, it does quite the opposite. It gives us hope to fight sin. And that's why Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. I am encouraging you to fight the sin, to put away your childish ways, to put away your foolish ways, not because it's within you that this strength is gathered up, but because in Christ you have the strength to do so. And so we don't approach this with some kind of glory. We don't approach the messiness of believers and the ongoing struggle of sin and believers as something to glory in. Far be it, we are not ambivalent about our fight in sin. We are actually much more uh, strengthened to fight in our, uh, our sin when we are properly ordered and properly anchored in the person and work of Christ. So in love, Paul is writing this letter to this church to combat, to fight, to remain in the, in, in, the, in the struggle to fight sin, to put it to death, to put together for them specifically that prideful, spiritual, arrogant um, ways that they have been corrupting this church and had got them distracted. And the reason why he can call them to this, again, is because of the glorious truth of the gospel. See, many in the Corinthian fellowship were pridefully distorting the reality of this glorious gospel and hiding it behind lives that were more about showing off themselves to one another and to the world. And Paul says this has no place, this has no standing in the scriptures and no standing in the gospel. And so it, this could not be more of a reality than in how the Corinthian church was uh, applying this to spiritual gifts. They were abusing them. They were misusing them, um, and, they, and when the church came together for corporate worship, when they were coming together for their fellowship, this, the, the spiritual gifts were doing anything but building up the church, doing anything but unifying the church. They were doing everything to compartmentalize and separate the church. And so Paul spends chapters 11, 12, 13, and now 14 to address what we, what they should be doing as they gathered and they were covenanted together, especially in that most holy of times that we do each week, the corporate gathering of God's people. So then, inside chapters 12 through 14, Paul begins to deal specifically with how spiritual gifts function in the church. And we saw this in chapter 12. And he starts there, and he begins to kind of set the record straight. And the main record he's setting straight is, you are one body with many members. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are ears. And all these things are giftings from God. What's more, God chooses those spiritual gifts. You don't choose them. He didn't, or he, he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's sovereign. He gives us these spiritual gifts so that we should not bang our chest and our giftings to somehow or another show how awesome we are. This is oftentimes what happens in, uh, in, in Christianity and even in our evangelical circles sometimes. No spiritual gifts are from God. And they're for the purpose of building, upbuilding the body of Christ. That's why he gave them to us. That's why we, they, what they are for. And that's key to everything he has the conversation about in this, this discussion about spiritual gifts here in this section. Because sometimes what we end up doing in the church is we create this kind of JV versus varsity reality in the church. JV are for the regular people. All right, you're a Christian. Great. You know, but varsity people, varsity people, that's the ones we got to be like. And um, nothing could be further from Christ's heart and mind for his church. Nothing could be further from that. And so as we continue to go through this, this section, we recognize that God gives you these gifts. He gives you and I these gifts, which means you, everyone sitting in this room, everyone sitting in the, in the fellowship hall down here watching online, each one of us has a gift, and it means that we matter. You matter. You matter and you belong here and you're needed. And that means all of us, how well this fits with what we've just preached through last month. And again, it's not given to us. These spiritual gifts are not given to us so that we might feel special about ourselves, but how we might use them for one another. That's why God gifted you. If you have a gift of hospitality, for example, it seems kind of silly to not share your cookies, right? 
Well, that's kind of what we do sometimes with spiritual gifts. We're just not sharing our cookies. And then sometimes we take our spiritual gifts and we make them all about between us and God, and therefore it's nothing that benefits the church in any meaningful way. And the, Paul here says, share your cookies. This is what we're about. And so as he moves towards the end of chapter 12 to talk about this unity and diversity in terms of the different gifts and then ends the chapter with these really powerful words that we're going to come back and expand on a little bit more today. Verse 31, he says there in chapter 12, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Which leaves us with a question, a question that he does not immediately answer because what Paul does is he takes an excursus, what appears to be an excursus on this topic of love and the necessity of it so that he can come back to it in chapter 14, which is what we're going to deal with today, to deal with what these kinds of higher gifts are. And what Paul, why Paul designs it that way is very clear. I hope you see it. It should be pretty clear to us is that as he's talking about what the gifts are and how they're used and how God distributes them, and then he stops with love, he's essentially saying, where you go off the rails with your gifts is because you don't love one another. You, you seek those gifts to make yourself feel better, to, to, to maybe show the how, how close you are to God or how important you are to God's plan and all those kinds of things. So what's missing in the Corinthians' use of the gifts, of, uh, gifts is love. And brothers and sisters, if we do not have love, our gifts are just, well, he says it, a clinging symbol, aren't they? They are useless. But if we have love, Christ-like, sacrificial, others-focused love, it will steer our giftings for what? Well, it'll steer our giftings to build the church up, to magnify Christ. So then we come back to chapter 14 here in verse 1. Here's what we see. Verse 31 of chapter 12, earnestly desire the, half, the, the higher gifts. Verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love. So everything he said there in chapter 13, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, isn't that interesting? So what he's done is he's answering the question of chapter 12, verse 31. What is this higher gift? It is the ministry of prophecy. That is what we should earnestly desire with one another, and we do so in the context of love. Like it means word-driven love. Love that is, that, 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 that is expressed in the love of God's word and the love of God himself and his love of God towards us. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Again, picking up chapter 12, verse 31, answering the question, and he says, especially that you may prophesy. Again, read verses 2 and 3. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. But on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and the encouragement and consolation. So Paul is now putting his finger on the real issue. There are people in the church who are taking their spiritual gifts and they're saying, and they're making it about them and they're making this big display in front of everybody and they're causing not building up the confusion, breaking down. They're, they're actually tearing the church apart. Excuse me. This is what they're doing. See, the people in Corinth were confused, and they wrongly thought that the height of their spiritual maturity was like varsity level, like I said a minute ago, and, 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 they, and they saw this speaking, this miraculous speaking in tongues as a demonstration of that. But Paul in this chapter does something fantastic. He's correcting him and saying, no, actually it's prophecy. And now when we talk about prophecy, here's what we mean. We're not talking about, we're talking about preaching and teaching, but we're talking more than preaching and teaching. We're talking about that kind of mutual encouragement with one another in the word as a body of Christ that's certainly embodied in, in, in preaching and teaching. It's not foretelling. It's not like Old Testament kind of future casting, but it's New Testament instruction and care. And so prophecy, he says, is best. Prophecy that is word-based ministry in the context of the local church. That is the most helpful platform for building up the church. That's the main point of this text. Whatever we say about tongues, whatever maybe people might disagree on this issue, specifically uninterpreted tongues, what we need to recognize is that what Paul wants us to see is that prophecy, this ministry of word-based mutual uh, encouragement within the church again preaching and teaching but more than that i think that's 
the higher gift. Every Christian should build himself up in that kind of ministry. And so here's the main idea for this text. Christians should seek the ministry of prophecy, which is word-based ministry. Here we go. Pay attention. In the context of accountable and reciprocal. Back and forth. You build me up and I build you up. So let me say it again. Christians should seek the ministry of prophecy, which is word-based ministry in the context of accountable and reciprocal church community that builds up the church. That's what we mean by that. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. And he's got three reasons why that's the fact, why that should be the case for us, why we should put this above all things as the higher gift of chapter 12, verse 31. And here's the first one. Spiritual gifts should not serve ourselves or yourself, but serve the church. That's the first thing he covers here in verses 2 through 5. I've already read verses 2 and 3, but let's go ahead and see how he grounds it. The one who speaks in tongue builds himself, but not the one who prophesies, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. He makes it very clear. The one who's engaged in all these other things, they, they, they have nothing to offer the church. And again, we're talking about uninterpreted tongues, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, if I want... Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues, and we'll talk about what that means here in a second, so let's put a, put a pin in that. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, here's the elephant in the room. What in the world are tongues? I know we all want to talk about it, so let's go ahead and talk about it for a few minutes, Okay. And I want to say from the very beginning, and, I, and I've talked about this, we've, I've talked with some of our elders on these things, and, um, and my, my, my brother uh, Jeff over here, who's coming out of this, this, that, that world, a really strong, charismatic world, and I just really was wonderfully helped by those conversations this week. And I just want to say, we need to approach this issue with humility. And it's because there are Bible-believing people who are not entirely crystal clear about all the things here, although I'm pretty clear about it. But I don't want to assume that somehow or another I've got the last word on text that the church has been debating for centuries. Okay? Some people, but the problem is, is that some people take this passage and passages here and they just, they just do some really wonky things. They abuse it and then they end up building a pretty flawed theology. And, and, and at the end of the day, they end up distorting the gospel. So again, some people take this to excess and that's why we want to make sure we deal with it clearly so here's what tongues are the word in greek is glossolalia you likely know that if you've been around the church very long glossolalia and it's translated elsewhere in the new testament as languages and the reason i note that is because when we when when uh, when you read speaking in tongues we need to think about speaking in languages and unfortunately many of the english translations including the esv and the ones that probably you're reading this morning they use the word tongues and it feels a bit archaic and frankly it gets a little bit gets a little bit our dander up on our back of our neck sometimes and we go what in the world are we talking about that sounds super crazy um, and so then they don't really know what's happening here what is all this tongues business it sounds like witchcraft to me right no 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 actually what paul is dealing with is that practice right that we've seen that goes back to acts 2 right acts 2 these languages um, and they're speaking in tongues. We need to think of speaking in languages. But that's what we see in Acts 2 when the gift comes upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. They start speaking miraculously in foreign languages that they did not learn and they could not even interpret at that moment. Like they were speaking things and, and, and people were hearing their gospel, the gospel in their own language. So it was known languages. And so when he's talking about this, and again, you'll remember back in chapter 12, if you, if you can go back that far, that he says powerful, that, that, that um, now I'll state it again, I'm getting, my, getting ahead of myself here. I stated back in chapter 12, powerful manifestations or moves of the spirit in the biblical unfolding of redemption are always seen to signal some kind of inaugural moment in the story of redemption. That's really key when you start thinking about some of these things that we kind of want to plug in and think, oh, those mean regular things for the church, when in reality, they're not regular things for the church. Pentecost was never meant to be a regular thing for the church. These, these gift of tongues was never meant to be a regular thing for the church. They were meant to be an inaugural moment. They were keying some moments into, in the story of redemption that then are there to tell them that God's, power, that God's work of redemption and God's work of the gospel is coming more clear. 
And this moment of Pentecost is a key moment because it displays something powerful about the reversal of Babel. All right? Y'all remember Babel in Genesis chapter 11, right? God cursed these prideful people who were building this city to show off the God, show how big they are. Same thing the Corinthians tend to do right now. They're showing off how big, how big and how bad they are. And God says, no, you are doing nothing but driving yourself further away from me. So then he gives them these languages. They can't understand each other. It causes confusion. And then they eventually spread out across all the world. And so since that time, the earth has been in rebellion against God and in confusion because they're under this curse, just like they were coming out of the garden. And so these languages cause division. And at Pentecost, and here's what's wonderful about Pentecost, it's a signal of the retrieval of all of God's work of gospel to call back the nations to the God of creation and to be saved in Jesus Christ. And so when the, the apostles are there preaching and their people are hearing them in their own language, it's a signal to them, you may come back to the Lord of life. That's what Pentecost is all about. You may be saved too. You don't have to live in your rebellion. You don't have to live in your confusion anymore. You don't have to live in your darkness anymore. And so the peoples from all over this Mediterranean area at the time began hearing the gospel in their own native languages, and thus they're being called back to God's new humanity, God's redeemed community. And friends, that's what speaking in tongues is, I believe, in its entirety. It's miraculously being able to speak known languages that you did not learn, and it's usually seen then in missionary contexts as the gospel pushes into locations in people groups that have never heard the gospel of Jesus. And there are some debates, let's just go ahead and put it on the table, among some historic secessionists, of which I would consider myself, as to whether tongues can happen today. And I'll go so far as to say this, maybe. You, know, you like that definitive stance, right? Maybe. Um, in context, but I would say that's exclusively in context where the gospel has not spread. We don't know the language, and the Lord empowers things in ways that we cannot see, much like he would have done in Acts chapter 2. So, to know I'm in good company, because I know you guys like this guy, Paul Washer holds this position, so you know what, deal with him, okay? So take your questions to Paul Washer. He's probably well much better equipped to deal with this since he reads a mission agency anyway, okay? But that being said is, um, that's about as far as I'm willing to take it. That's about as far as my, I can stretch myself on this because uh, at best, I think these things are extremely rare today in terms of this, the role of, um, sorry, the role of these gifts. That's about as far as I'm willing to take it. Why? Because Pentecost, and this is really, really key, what was happening is people were taking this moment in Pentecost and they were making it normative. But Pentecost was not meant to institute something normative or some kind of normative practice for the church. It was meant to be inaugural. And it signified in that moment, some special moment in the history of redemption. So that's what I believe the Bible teaches regarding speaking in tongues. Speaking in a known language, foreign language that the speaker did not learn unless was also gifted with interpretation the speaker does not understand. Now, some people think, just to be fair, there are those who think that there is private language uh, type of speaking in tongues. I tried to leave room in my theology that for a while, but I found it very, very difficult to do so as I continue to read scripture and mature my theology. And that would make little sense to me because, again, the whole point of spiritual gifts is building up the body. And so, again, kind of like what I said earlier, if you've got the gift of hospitality and you don't share your cookies, that doesn't seem, seems kind of useless, right? So I, I don't believe that God's out here trying to get you to have your best relationship, like your best kind of experience with him now. You're his people, and you live that out by loving one another. That's what Paul, and that's what John, I mean, that's what Jesus told his disciples to do when he washed their feet. Others think that there's kind of heavenly language here. I've wrestled with this one as well, even recently wrestled with this one. In fact, that's what prompted my conversation with Jeff, coming into coffee with him this past week, trying to, trying to figure out, like, where I, I, hear, I hear more willingness to go here with my theological tribe than others. Um, because they'll go back to chapter 13 and they'll say, well, I speak, uh, you know, speaking of tongues of men and angels, at the end of the day, I think I'm convinced that that's Paul's hyperbolic use of language like he does in Galatians and all kinds of places. He's using that not as an indication that there are two distinct kinds of tongues of men and tongues of angels, but what he's trying to do there is trying to shock them back into, like, are, are you in communion with God? Are you listening to his word? And that's what he, are you really loving people? 
And is that, the, is that the manifestation of your gift? Because it doesn't seem that's what's happening in this Corinthian church. So I think he's using that more in a hyperbolic way as I think through this more. And even more than that, I think it's very hard to take one verse or two verses and try to build off a doctrine on it. I think it's very dangerous to do this. In fact, that's very contra to what folks in my tribe, or our tribe, theological tribe, reformed or even church history father, uh, church fathers, like that's not the method that we've ever, we really brought to the text. Like we don't go build doctrine on just one or two verses. We build doctrine off the pericope of the whole Bible's narrative, right? That's what we want to do. So you got to be very careful to not say more and we got to make sure we say never be, be careful not to say less than what the Bible says. We can wrestle with these things. That's perfectly fine. But we need to be careful that we submit them to the larger where we don't take less, um, we don't take less clear passages and build doctrine off of them. We take less clear passages and we bring more clear passages to those. That's, that's, that's a principle of good biblical interpretation. So I think that's a safe place for us to be, right? But again, here's the thing. Where people go off the rails with this, regardless of where they land in some of these matters that I've just discussed, um, there are those in the Corinthian community, and frankly, there are those in the modern-day community who feel like this is a gift, and it's an expected gift, and if you really are wanting to be varsity-level Christian, Christian you're going to have this gift, and that's the problem. That's the problem in the Corinthian church. And if you have it, you're going to be one of us. You're going to show your spiritual credentials and this is what the Corinthians were doing, and it's frankly what some Christian denominations do today as well. But in fact, Paul doesn't agree with that. Paul clearly says here, and says in chapter 12, and implies it there, not everybody has the same gifts, right? So that would make no sense. So why are you now then trying to put some kind of burden on people's spiritual gifts, and why are you trying to highlight yours over above theirs? Um, even those who have, in Paul's day, were called to use this gift, right? And there were people who had the gift of tongues in Paul's day. I love Paul's instruction to them. If, if, if it's not going to be there useful to help proclaim the gospel and people hear the gospel, sit down and be quiet. So that means sometimes, and this might come out a little shock to us, sometimes our spiritual gifts are just not appropriate for the moment. Right? we got to recognize that, and the Spirit shows and leads us appropriately in those things. So my card's on the table. As I said, I've vacillated different times, but I believe I am firmly in the secessionist camp now and uh, tried to be open to a continuance of some of the gifts, but never been open to revelatory gifts because that would be a contrary to what we know about the Bible and the finality of the word that God's given us. And so the I, I, reason I share that is because I think we've got to be careful that a lot of what we see in, in modern churches today, and this is not me trying to judge anyone, it, 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 it's, it, it may be fake, it may be driven by emotionalism, it may be driven by peer pressure. Hey, listen, we got peer pressure in the Baptist church. I can tell you countless people who've walked an aisle who do not believe now they were saved, later on in life they were saved because they were peer pressure because their buddies went down forward and they prayed. They prayed a prayer because they felt like they had to. So peer pressure is not just in our charismatic world. It's right here in our little Southern Baptist corner of the universe as well, right? Sometimes we do it for show. But here's the thing. It may be worse. Some people may be doing this for demonic reasons or out of a demonic spirit. And I think that's, we've got to be open to the reality that's there. And so Paul makes it clear that prophecy, again, word-based reciprocal ministry within the church, preaching and teaching, that is more helpful, brothers and sisters. It's more upbuilding. It's more edifying to the church than tongues. And this was a major corrective in Corinth. Corinth and, and some today love the sensational way more than they love the ordinary way. And this is where we just get bored, right? Man, I just want something exciting. I got, man, pastor, turn up the volume, you know? Uh, uh, where, where, are, where is all the stuff? Where's the lights? Where's the things? And, and brothers and sisters, that is not the way we grade a church. You're not, we're not looking for the next big experience. We're not looking for something to stir us out of our, of our deadness. Only the gospel of life through the priest's word can stir us out of our deadness and our coldness. And that's why Paul says, the ministry of the word is the most essential thing to you in the context of the church. And brothers and sisters, I dare I say this, this goes far beyond just even this, this misapplication of spiritual gifts. 
It calls us to examine how you and I go about thinking about what makes the church relevant or what tracks us to certain churches, as I just said. Are we always looking for the extraordinary? Are we always looking for something different to kind of, you know, something to set me in the mood or looking to prove that I, that we're experiencing Jesus? Paul was saying, no, what you need most is ordinary. Ordinary preaching, ordinary teaching of the Bible, ordinary instruction, ordinary biblical community that's rooted in the word of God. That's what we need most. Ordinary is good. It's beautiful. And unfortunately, we get distracted by all this other stuff. So preaching is not, I'm sorry, spiritual gifts should not serve us or ourselves. It should serve the church. Number two, preaching and teaching, i.e. ministry of the word, I think it's, again, broader, but nevertheless, than preaching and teaching, they build up the body of Christ. That is the higher gift of chapter 12, verse 31. And we see this in chapter, in verses 6 through 19. Yeah, Paul, he's going to dive deeper here in the next few verses and show us, in fact, the word-based ministry, preaching, teaching, counsel, uh, uh, edification, discipling. Like, there's a greater. The gospel is clear. And it needs to be communicated clearly within the body of Christ. And this is why doctrine is not just on the side of the, a few select nerdy types. Like Doctrine matters for your life. Brothers and sisters, you should grow up in your doctrine. And you do that by being in the word. And you do that by being in the word in community. This is what we're about. Verse 6, now brothers, I, if I come to you speaking in a tongue, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. And even if lifeless instruments such as a flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will anyone get ready for battle? So you see where he's going here. He uses these three analogies to kind of show why tongues is insufficient, but prophecy is greater. He says, first, he talks about these Lifeless instruments. Second, he talks about the role of the bugle and the military call to arms. And then third, he talks about the, the, the speaking into the air and these languages that basically um, makes me a foreigner to you and you a foreigner to me. And so that's Paul. He, he says, earnestly desiring the gifts, it's manifested in the desire to see the church built up in the word of God. That's, that's real ministry. And so if you think about these illustrations as they are, and you think a little deeper about why Paul's even using these illustrations, I think they become extremely helpful for us. I mean, think about the instrument for a second. If you use a flute or a harp or any other instrument you might want to put in that list, if it makes no distinct sound or no melody, it can be kind of hard on the ears, right? It can cause a little confusion. I mean, think about the elementary Christmas cantata every year at your school, right? I mean, I know you're trying really hard, but come on, y'all. Right? It's a little bit hard on the ears. Right? And we've seen that. And I'm sorry. I know some people really love children's choirs, and I do too, and it's cute looking and all that kind of stuff. But it can be a bit hard on the ears. I mean, we had this, we had this uh, music teacher the boys have all not enjoyed at all in their elementary experience because he forces his love for music on these kids, and they're all going like, donk, donk, donk. You, you know, you've met that music teacher, right? It's hard to hear. So in essence, what Paul is saying here is that the use of of uninterpreted tongue proves to send people back into confusion, right? It, I'm sorry, I, I, Heather's a, she's a music teacher, I know, sorry. Uh, I'm gonna pay for that one later. Uh, she's shaking her head for me. All right, um, Lord, help me. All right, so, but Paul was saying here is uninterpreted tongues prove to send people back to Babel. They just send us back into the confusion. They don't propel us forward towards the gospel. Or the bugle that is played with no distinct sound, what does it fail to do? It fails to get the army ready for the, for, for, for the battle. It, 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 it prevents us from being ready for the spiritual attack that is looming as we live in this life. Word-based ministry prevents us from falling into those traps. Or hearing a tongue that is not understood, creates division between one member and another, right? Because of this, Paul says to those who are with the gift of tongues that they should pray that God provides an interpreter, right? Or our terrible consequences will ensue. Let's see what he says in his mind. He has 
therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, verse 13, should pray that he may interpret. For I pray, if I pray in a tongue and my spirit prays, prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? In other words, if I'm praying in the spirit, but I have no ability to, to make it clear to the people around me, what am I supposed to do? Well, I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind also. And I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. And then he goes on down. Just give on, so I give thanks. Verse 17, you may be giving thanks all the well, all the more, uh, more, more, but I have no idea what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks all the more, but no one is being built up. But I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But nevertheless, I'd rather speak five words in a, my mind. Five intelligible words that everyone can understand about the gospel than to, to, to rattle off some 5,000 words that no one gets just because it looks impressive. See, Paul sees the consequences of uninterpreted tongues as grave. It disconnects the spirit from the mind. That's an important part of this, too. We tend to kind of sometimes think about spiritual life as something disconnected from the body. The body, we are, we are embodied spirits. And that's what we're designed to be. So seeking disembodied spiritual experience can be one of the most dangerous and, dare I say, demonic things that we can do. And it leads us far away from truth in the end. And so that's the reason why this becomes a problem when it's abused. So thus Paul returns in verse 19 to his central thesis. Clear prophecy, clear teaching. Five words that are clear are way more valuable than 5,000 that are not. Right? It's far more profitable and keeps us from spiritual ambiguity at best and spiritual danger at worst. And as I previously stated just a little bit ago, there are the kind, there's this kind of fascination sometimes in our modern evangelical circles with spiritual experience that is ethereal and it's not grounded in real life. And that's a problem for Paul, for us. Man, we must be, it must be a fundamental, it must be fundamental to prefer the ordinary ministry of word in the life of the church. That's what we should pursue. But it's not just the benefit to one another. There's a benefit to it in evangelism. That's my third point. Clarity in the gospel discourse, sorry, clarity in gospel discourse calls unbelievers to repentance. That's what we see there in verses 20 through 25, for brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So what does he say there? He's kind of tying this last part with this previous part we just discussed. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. So don't be immature in your thinking. Actually, you can be infants in evil, be, seek purity, but be mature in your thinking. He's exhorting this Corinthian church to be mature, not infants, right? Be not infants in evil. In other words, seek the purity of the word in your fellowship and avoid any hint of evil sin that causes confusion and that the gospel cannot be seen and, and produces disunity and division in the church. Like, avoid those things. We have read, we've already seen previously, when we, read, when we studied this back in the fall, that the church was horribly divided over a number of issues, and a lot of it had to do with just this kind of spiritual one-upsmanship. That's what it was always about. And, it was, and Paul says back then, and he would say concurrently right now, that's rooted in worldly thinking. They were acting divisively in their use of the gifts. They were being used for personal reasons, not for building up the body. Their use of the gifts was causing the church to divide into tribes of super spiritual versus average people. And Paul over and over again commends the ordinary ways. The ordinary there's nothing more powerful in Paul's mind than the ordinary use of word-based ministry within the church that creates reciprocal and mutually edifying spiritual life with one another. But for Paul, it wasn't just that benefit. He makes this connection here. It impacts our relationship with outsiders. It impacts our relationship with unbelievers. It impacts evangelism. There, there our word-based ministry was a means to evangelize neighbors. Verse 21, in the law it is written, by my people, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, talking about Israel, this is Isaiah, Isaiah 29, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
While prophecy is a sign for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole, war, whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of heart, his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. See, Paul appeals to the law here, but not the Mosaic law, the prophetic word of Isaiah to warn them of this dangerous reality that of assumed spiritual gravitas. See, the Israel thought they had it all together, and they ignored the prophets like Isaiah saying, your doom is at hand, your judgment is at hand, and you'll know judgment has landed on you when these foreigners come into your land and they're speaking languages you don't understand. He makes clear by using Isaiah that the use of unknown and uninterpreted tongues has a sign to unbelievers. See, sadly, some people will take this and they'll debate and say, well, see, tongues are actually used for evangelism. That's actually not happening here at all. And actually, even Acts 2, that's not happening at all. It actually, it actually is a, it's, it's a, it's a call towards condemnation. It's a call towards judgment. See, the debate here is not about this being a use for, like, tongues being used to draw people to faith. But some in this charismatic camp, extreme charismatic camp, I'd say, um, see this positively, like tongues are used. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He, doesn't, he does not see blessing in tongues here. That's what we might be tempted to see here in, in this passage. He sees the same judgment that Israel experienced when they didn't listen to Isaiah, and then all of a sudden a series sweeps in and takes over their land. Here Paul has judgment in view for unbelievers through tongues. And he confirms that in verse 23 when he says that an unbeliever comes into and sees you and all the babble going on in your church, and he just dismisses your gospel out of hand. This is madness. Or, at worst, he goes, well, I see this kind of stuff in the pagan temples that I come out of, so you're really no different than what I'm already been worshiping, so what, why do I need your Jesus? And so then he says, in saying that prophecy is for believers and not unbelievers, he's not saying that that's not equally beneficial to unbelievers actually he confirms they are beneficial like our ministry mutual reciprocal relationship in the word does benefit believer unbelievers why we do worship the way we do here i'll, I'll get into that here in a second paul's not saying that tongues evangelize and doctrine and preaching is for uh, uh, i'm sorry tongues evangelizes unbelievers and doctrine and preaching is for believers only he's saying that as the church is edified by mutual and reciprocal word-based ministry I'll say that a hundred times for you guys before this is over with. I want that to be grounded in your heart, in your mind, okay? Right? As the church is edified by mutual and reciprocal word-based ministry of the word through preaching and teaching in all kinds of other ways, that it will spill over into outsiders' lives. It'll spill over into unbelievers' lives. They will be able to come in and be, be party to our fellowship here in worship or maybe be part of one of your groups that you're part of or one of our ministries we do here in the church, and they'll hear clearly the gospel taught and the church being built up in the gospel, and they will hear the teaching of the gospel, they will have their sins exposed, and perhaps they will draw them to repentance and faith. Friends, clear gospel ministry is prized in the church, and it happens in the most ordinary of ways. And again, um, just a little hint at next week, because we're going to deal with order of worship next week in the end of chapter 14. This is why proper order, why we do all the things we're doing in this bulletin matter. Why? Because the centrality of preaching is vital, and the centrality of the word is vital to Christian worship. Worship that is expressed intuitively, I'm sorry, that is expressly and intuitively word-centered is evangelistic. But as people come in here and they go, we've made it clear what we believe and what we're confessing. That is evangelistic. That's what it means. Right? But we also, also mean that in evangelism peer-to-peer. It's never less than that. We should share the gospel with our neighbors. We should share the gospel with, um, with, with wherever, uh, wherever we want to go preach, with our co-workers, our unbelieving fan. But where the word of God is preached, where the word of God is spoken, where the word of God is read loud, wherever it may be, where the sacraments are properly uh, uh, used, and where properly the church is working together in mutual discipleship with one another, i.e. in good biblical membership, it functions as a body in a family in Christ, there is something about that that is intuitively evangelistic because it's so 
out of the ordinary for the rest of the world. That's why we attend to these things. So wrapping up, pulling all this together here. Chapter 14, Paul is answering the question, seek the higher gifts. Brothers and sisters, the higher gift is ministry of the word. He's not creating varsity level people over JV people. All believers then should be built up in the word. All believers should be rooted in the word and be able to share the word with one another and encourage one another in the word, to be edified, to exhort one another in the word. That's all fundamental, and that is the demonstration of the most, most fundamental of spiritual gifts. And so as we finish up, brothers and sisters, I, I want to urge us not to grow weary in this. Don't grow too familiar with it. Seek to extend it beyond even this corporate worship gathering this morning and seek to extend it into the relationships that you have in this church and beyond. And, and I, 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 a shameless plug here. Like, that's why we do Sunday school. That's why we offer classes for children age-graded, youth and whatnot. That's why we have some small groups. That's why we have ministries. That's why we have these different things that go on through our church. Right? Why? Because the ultimate goal is to build one another up in the Word. Like, we do fun things, like our youth did at lock-in the other night, and that was, they had a great time. I, I, I got back two cranky teenagers, but that's okay. We lived through it. We got through it last night. If they didn't get any sleep, I get it. I get it. But the Word-based reciprocal ministry in the church in various contexts is really important. So if you're not engaged in those ways beyond this moment, I want to encourage you to do that. If you don't know where to start, come find me. Come find one of our elders. We'll help you get there. Word-based member ministry, member-to-member ministry can happen in all kinds of ways. And if we don't have it for you right now, we can help you figure it out. The main thing here, friends, and, and, and let's get ready to prepare ourselves for prayer, is that God would be glorified in our church in the way in which we keep the word of Christ central in everything that we do. Amen? Father, help us this morning as we come and we prepare for the Lord's table. What a wonderful, rich word it is for us. What a wonderful encouragement. What a wonderful way it stokes our hearts and our minds. And so, Father, as we come and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, may your people be glorified. I'm sorry, but may you be glorified through your people, excuse me. As the way in which we share this table, we share in our hope of Christ with one another. And Father, we love you, Jesus, and we trust that you're going to be at work in the things ahead. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As our worship team comes forward this morning, we're going to